a member of a group? What does it mean to be a part of a group? That's often a question you might wonder is what does it take to be a member of this group, to be a member of this community? Last week, we looked at the fact that we are a covenant people, that God has brought us into a covenant relationship with himself, but also with one another. What, is, what does that take? What does that mean? How do we become part of this covenant people? Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 13, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The first thing that we see here in Romans chapter 4 is that our standing as God's people is grace-based. Our standing as God's people is grace-based. Our being a part of this covenant people is based on the grace of God alone. Back to verses 13 to 15 where it says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So again, just putting our history in context that it wasn't because Abraham was this strict adherent to the law of God that he was made a, a covenant person in the sight of God. It wasn't based on his obedience that he was brought into a covenant relationship with God. And here's why, simple history. The law was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. The book before Exodus is Genesis, and it's in Genesis chapter 12 that we are introduced to Abram automatically with God initiating a covenant with him. So as we come to Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, God is instituting a covenant with whose name is at that point Abram. And what do we know about Abram in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1? The name of his dad. That's it. We know nothing else about Abram, nothing that he's ever done, nothing that he's ever accomplished, nothing that he's ever added to his credentials as to why God would choose him to enter a covenant with. Because it wasn't based on Abram. It wasn't based on anything that Abram did or deserved or earned. It was simply the grace of God choosing to enter into covenant with Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, where it says, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation, 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. If I'm Abram, I'm like, why me? What did I do? And the answer is simply nothing. Abram did nothing other than be born. That's all we know about him. And God says, this is the one that I want to begin a covenant relationship with. And so he says in verse 14, for if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, this is significant because God enters covenant relationship with Abram long before the law is given. And there's an intentionality on God's end about that because if God institutes covenant with humanity at or after the giving of the law, then we can begin to say, well, it's based on how well you perform. If you do enough, if you obey enough of the law, if you are righteous because you so diligently keep the law, then a covenant relationship with God is based on your obedience to the law. But Paul here is going back to Abram saying that the pattern of covenant goes back to Abram. And Abram had nothing to do with the law. This was before the law, before we're told anything that Abram does. In fact, if you look at the testimony of Abram's life, it's a hot mess. Abram lives his life and gives ample reason why he should not be God's chosen covenant object. Because Abram does some stupid stuff in his life. But yet God initiates covenant because a covenant relationship with God is based on God's initiative, not our efforts. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six says, without faith, is it impossible to please him? It's impossible to please God. What God is looking for in the human heart is faith, faith in him, faith in Christ. Because if it's based on works, if it's based on our efforts, well, we'll get into that mess in a second, but back to Romans 4, verse 15, it says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So what Paul's saying here basically is the role of the law is to show you that you can't keep the law. It seems counterproductive that the purpose of the law is to show you that you can't keep the law. So isn't that kind of cruel? Why give a law to simply show us that we can't keep it? To show us that we can't earn a covenant with God by keeping the law. Paul says that that's the role that the law played in my life, to show me that I'm a sinner, to show me that I fall short of what God requires. I mean, to think through the reality of living in ancient Israel, and looking at all of these laws and commands of God, and how overwhelming that would be to think, if I want a relationship with God, I need to keep everything that's written in, these, in the Old Testament. I've got to keep it to a T, because if I fail at one point, I am banished from covenant with God. Now, certainly, there's a conversation about obedience. We see that even played out in the Old Testament. But we have to understand that while we have a faith response of obedience to God, our obedience does not earn us 
a place in a covenant relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do. We can sit in church. We can have church services here every single day of the week, 365 days a year, and you can come to all of them, and that is not going to earn you a place in a covenant relationship with God. A standing in a covenant relationship with God is is based on grace and is only made possible through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not our own doing. In other words, it's not because, wow, you, you did such a great job. Here, you've, this is your reward. You've earned this. Our standing as covenant people of God is because Jesus was perfectly obedient, And he took our sins so that he can make the swap. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. There's nothing I can add to that. I mean, it's as if standing before God saying, you know what, I don't want the righteousness of Jesus to apply to me. I want to stand on the merit of my own righteousness. I'd be a fool. It's the grace of of God alone that saves us. It's the grace of God alone that sustains us. It's the grace of God alone that secures us forever. Because if my covenant with God is based on my obedience, then guess what every day of my life is going to be like? Maybe when I first wake up, it's like I've lost my salvation because I don't like mornings and I grumbled when the alarm clock went off. So I've lost my salvation. So I've got to earn it now before lunch. And okay, by lunch, I've earned back my salvation, but, you know, I, I made a mistake after lunch, and, and now I've lost my salvation. Now I've got to re-earn it again through the rest of the day. That would be every day of our lives if salvation was based on our works. This constant battle, am I losing? Am I earning? Am I losing? Am I earning? Christ has made that secure through the grace he's made available through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he alone is the way that we can enter into a covenant relationship with God. And so because of that, the second thing that Romans 4 points out is that our standing as God's people is secure. Because it's based on the grace of God, not our own works, it is then secure. It cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away, starting at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, it depends on faith. Because it depends on faith, because it rests on the grace of God, it is secure. Now, this is why Romans is later going to go on to say, well, if, if that's the case, should we just keep on sinning and just sin however we want? No. But it's saying, no matter what you do, your standing in a covenant relationship with God is secure. Which means, yes, we're going to mess up. Yes, we're going to stumble. Paul has this whole existential crisis in Romans 7 of, I want to do good, but I don't. And the the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. And 
That's the, the battle of the Christian life. But our standing with Christ is secure because it's standing in Christ. It's not standing on our own efforts. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, it said, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is especially good news if you're a Gentile believer. And the gospel is just now penetrating the Gentile world in the first century. And initially you're thinking, okay, if I want to be a Jesus follower, that means that I need to suddenly get caught up on the law. I need to keep all of this Jewish law stuff if I'm to have a relationship with Christ. And this became a point of tension in the early church. Some of the Jewish Christians were like, oh, yeah, because Jesus' following was born out of Judaism. So yeah, if you're a Gentile and want to become a Jesus follower, you need to become Jewish too. And they have great debates saying, no, that's, no, we can't impose that on them. It's about faith. Christ. Faith in Christ alone. So Jew or Gentile alike, it's not about keeping the law. It's about trust in Christ. And verse 17 says, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. God promised Abram, I will make you the father of many nations, not just of the one nation of the Jewish people, but through Abraham would, become, would come a lineage that would become a people of God, not based on their lineage, not based on their obedience, but based on the faith of Abraham, the faith that Abram expressed in God. Again, if it wasn't for faith, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we can look at Abraham's life and observe all the times he should have been disqualified from covenant with God. Yet over and over, his standing was secure because it was based on faith. The third thing, our standing as God's people is to be received. If it's grace-based, if we're to be secure, it's something that has to be received. We don't automatically inherit it. Starting at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, initially, I stop and say, time out, that's being awfully generous. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah. He didn't waver, really? He and his wife concocted this plot that, well, we're going to have to have a child through Hagar. That's not weakening in faith. It was stupid. They didn't understand the promise of God, but think about this for a second. I'm not trying to justify what he did. You're 100 years old, and your wife is in her 90s as well. 
God has promised that you're going to have a descendant. And you've been trying to have a child. It's not working. They never doubt God's promise that they have a child. Where they go wrong is they thought they had to take it into their own hands. And well, obviously God wasn't meaning through Sarah because she can't do that anymore, so we're going to have to find another way to do it. They still were clinging. This disobedience was based on their faith in God's promise, as weird as it was. But he still believed, God's going to give me a descendant, so we just got to get creative as to how this descendant comes into being. But what I want to notice, God had every right after this whole plot with Hagar, well, let's, let's continue your lineage through your maidservant. God could have said, whoa, Abraham, that is not what I meant. If this is how it's going to be, I'm cutting this thing off. But he doesn't. He doesn't cut off the covenant when Abraham and Sarah kind of play a little fast and loose with the truth about their relationship. Twice. God was faithful to his promise. God was faithful to his covenant, and it became effective for Abraham because he acted on his faith. He put his trust in the promise of God. And so therefore, verse 22 says, that it is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to his account. Again, because of anything he did? No, but because he believed. He believed God. Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to, it to him as righteousness. It was the faith of Abraham that credited righteousness to his account. It was the faith of Abraham that brought him into this covenant relationship with God. In verse 23, it says, But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. So Abraham is serving as a template. Abraham is serving as a template, a foreshadowing of what a covenant with God through Christ is going to look like, that it's not going to be about obedience. It's going to be about faith in Christ to what Christ has accomplished, where it goes on to say that he was delivered up for our trespasses. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why is it that our disobedience, our sin, doesn't disqualify us from a covenant relationship with God? Because all of my mistakes, all of my sins, and all of yours were dealt with in Jesus. He took that upon himself, so God has no more reason to say, well, I need to add further punishment. Because all the punishment was handled in the person of Christ when he gave himself up for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 goes on to say in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God takes everything we did before we put our faith in Christ, after we put our faith in Christ, all of it gets put on Christ on the cross. 
And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, what I said before, he took all of our sin, past, present, future, he puts it on Jesus on the cross. All of the righteousness that belonged to Christ is then transferred to our account so that we can stand before God having received that by faith. Receiving that grace by faith, we can stand in a covenant relationship with God and be seen by God as pure and faultless lambs of God. How is that possible? That I could be seen by God as spotless and blameless. Because all of my sin was placed on Christ. But not only was he delivered up for our trespasses, he was raised for our justification. This is God's act of declaring us free from guilt, acceptable to him. It's a legal declaration that your sin no longer has any hold on you. So how do we become a covenant people? How is it that we've entered into this covenant with each other, this covenant with God? It's because of Christ and what Christ has done for us. And the way to step into that covenant is to receive that grace by faith. So often as Christians, we, we wrestle, we struggle, we may fall into some kind of sin, and, and we wonder, can God still love me? Have I done enough good things to outweigh the bad things that I've done? Have I, have I been good enough in the sight of God? Do I get extra points because I came to church two weeks in a row? Do I, what kind of extra credit can I get from God? Are, are, are the scales balanced somehow in my favor? The testimony of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is that the scales no longer need to be balanced because it's been paid off in full. And by saying yes to Christ, yes to Jesus, we can rest in his grace and be a covenant people with God, be a covenant people with each other, to never have to doubt, to never have to worry, is his grace still applicable to me today? Because every day in Christ, the answer is yes. You say, well, you know, that, that's great for someone who's never trusted Christ as Savior, but can I say to you that it took me a long time as a follower of Christ to begin to comprehend what this means. Because we can trust in Christ as Savior and receive him by grace through faith, but then we fall back into this legalism of if I don't do enough good or I need to somehow work to maintain my standing with God. It's all the grace of God in Christ. Not just our salvation, our sanctification, our being sustained as his people, our future as his people, all of it is secured in the person of Christ. The Savior that we worship, the Savior that we love. This morning, are you resting in the grace of Christ? Are you still struggling with your own efforts? This is why Paul wrote the book of Galatians to a church of people who were judging each other's merit by how well they kept the law. And Paul said, you've perverted the gospel because the gospel is about the grace of God through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace.